I tell people this a lot too, like when I was working at Slack of like, you know, people aren't dumb uh, that are using our product, but they can be dumb in moments in the sense that like, you have a thousand things going on in your life, right? Like this one thing is not the one thing that they're focused on, uh, no matter what you're building. Um, it's like, all right, cool. I have this thing my boss is asking me to do and my kids are screaming maybe and like other things are all happening. And so you have to take those contexts into account and how someone might feel. Nobody's gonna look at the thing you're designing pretty much any time and be like, I am 100% focused and always gonna give you everything, right? So the more you can kind of think in that way, the better you can understand how to cater your design to that. And so I think an interesting thing that a lot of people deal with, especially coming right out of school, is they have this vision of what good design is. And sometimes that's at odds with what kind of the business is looking for or what um, even you know executives have in their mind. Um, and so that kind of conflict, I think, is one thing that's kind of difficult because the root of what you're trying to accomplish sometimes may not have a shared objective. The thing I just wanted to inspire, hopefully, people to think about is like, you can do something different. Like, the internet can be anything. We can make it anything. And I think a lot of websites that I look at and a lot of apps that I look at are just all trying to be each other, you know? Like, I really love websites like Stripe and Linear, and the people who make it are really talented and great. But you don't have to be that. <laughs> like, you don't have to design that way. You could do whatever you want. Like, there's nothing holding you back from being able to put a font that looks really weird and funky if that's what you're representing for yourself or for the business that you're creating for. So that's kind of what I was feeling and why I wanted to make it that way. What's up, everybody? I'm Guo, and you're listening to the Not Just Pixel Show. There's a lot to learn as a designer. So in this show, I sit down with design professionals to understand how to grow as a designer and help you get that UX design internship or job. Let's get into it. Today, I'm talking to Kyle Turman. Kyle, on this day of posting, no longer works as the director of product design at Retool, but for great reasons, which you can read more about in his latest article titled, Oh Hey, I quit my job. Now, before Retool, Kyle worked at Slack as the Senior Director of Product Design, and before that at Dropbox, Etsy, and many other companies. Now, I first discovered Kyle's portfolio a while back, and man, if you haven't seen it, it's in the show notes. Go check it out. This is what I call a portfolio with personality and style. Now, I got in touch with Kyle thanks to another amazing guest. Shout out to Kat. And I was so, so excited to chat with Kyle and it sure did not disappoint. We talked about a variety of topics, including the pillars of product design, learning business as a designer, the beauty of the internet, and so much more. I'm so glad I chatted with Kyle, and I'm sure you'll enjoy this one too. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with the World Wide Web mad scientist, Kyle Turman. Kyle, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Very excited to chat with you today. Yeah, likewise. So I would love to start with an article that you wrote last year on Slack's blog. It was titled Pillars of Product Design. And I read it and my take was that it was because I feel like it's really hard to like, I guess, like put product design concepts 
with words. And so I think with that article you did, like I really appreciate just how specific you were with the terminology. So I think just for context, do you mind very quickly giving a brief overview of the three pillars that you wrote down and just things to keep in mind for each of the pillars? Yeah, I think, um, I guess like some context of uh, why <laughs> why yeah. I wrote that in general is that I think that it's really hard to understand what product designers do uh, because the nature of product design has changed so much. Uh, I mean, I think I mentioned this, but when I went to school, uh, product design wasn't a thing. You know, like product design, uh, as we see it today, was probably more closely affiliated with uh, elements of graphic design or web design. The internet was like just maybe starting to become a thing, uh, but wasn't really used interactively in a way. And so like maybe people were making things in Flash or, or other things. And so the nature of that from there to where we are today has changed so much. Uh, a lot of it because the nature of tech and technology has changed so much, right? Um, and so I kind of wanted to give a little bit of a snapshot of what I see, because uh, I think that also, if you look at the current education system that we have today, I think that sometimes maybe that is a bit lagging and um, doesn't always talk about all the things that you need uh, in order to do a product design job. And so I tried to talk about a few of those things. I tried to also break down the difference between like a UI designer, a UX designer and a product designer in that, uh, you know, a product designer kind of just does everything. <laughs> but uh, the main things that a product designer does is kind of the aspect of problem solving, the user-centered problem solving, um, kind of the aspect of the actual user interface and experience design. So what someone sees and what someone does. And then lastly, they kind of do um, the uh, kind of collaboration communication to bring it all together. Um, so that's kind of at a high level, the three pillars, and there's obviously like stuff inside of that. And I've even further thought about this differently where, you know, you could break it down into two sections of you're either doing the work itself, like, so you're doing the UI work, you're doing the, um, you know, UX work, the flows, even the interaction design. And then when it comes to the collaboration part, that's a thing that a lot of people don't talk about either is like, that's the getting the work done part, right? So you can have the most beautiful designs. You can, you can do everything that you thought was the best decision, but then actually bringing that to life in a company is really challenging uh, and has its own set of problems to go with it. So uh, that's kind of why I wrote it. And those are kind of the pillars and, and how I kind of think about product design a little bit. No. Yeah. I love that. I, wanted to follow up on the last part that you mentioned about collaboration and you mentioned that you know imagine i'm a design like i'm a designer but i have this like really beautiful design but maybe at a company it's really hard to push it forward and actually see it built i'm curious like in a real life scenario at a company what are some of the things that's blocked like preventing the designs being implemented if that makes sense things that i can think of as maybe engineering uh, resources or maybe like, I guess more on the business side. Um, but these are just my, uh, my assumptions. Totally. So I actually just wrote another article recently about how designers should understand business. And I think that it's a really interesting thing that I see, especially when I was going to school for design and it was more graphic design. 
And the people that we were looking at were, you know, this, this element of kind of Euro Swiss style that was developed in the, the 40s. Um, a lot of that coming from like Bauhaus and other things, like even in the 20s, as far back as that. And a lot of those things and that Swiss style and the minimalism of that has made its way into the what we think of good design, right? You think of like Dieter Rams or uh, even Steve Jobs, right? Like these people who embrace this idea of like beautiful minimalism. And then that gets attributed as like the 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 goal that that's what we should do. That's good design. And so I think an interesting thing that a lot of people deal with, especially coming right out of school, is they have this vision of what good design is. And sometimes that's at odds with what kind of the business is looking for or what um, even, you know, executives have yeah. in their mind. Um, and so that kind of conflict, I think, is one thing that's kind of difficult because the root of what you're trying to accomplish sometimes may not have a shared objective in the sense that if you're bringing a design into a company to, to be done and you're like, I want to design this because it's good and I think it's good, then that's very much based on your own personal bias, your own personal understanding, which is fine. I think everyone has that, right? Like I love making button hover states just a little cooler than they need to be because it's fun. You know, that's okay. That's totally fine. But you have to understand how to apply that and then use that in the context of what the customer is trying to do and ultimately how that's going to help the person who's paying you to design something make more money. I mean, that's really what it comes down to, right? Yeah, yeah. So I guess like metrics-wise, it's like revenue, engagement are the two that I, I think of the most in terms of like we want to try to increase these like metrics. And I think, yeah, honestly, like as a college student myself, I totally agree. I feel like at least in my school, I feel like it's very hard to learn more on the collaboration aspect of things. Um, and yeah, it, it is challenging. So I think definitely doing side projects with like internships definitely oh, yeah, help us. For well. sure. And I learned a lot from that too. And uh, there was a moment I did freelance for about two years mm. and you learn really quickly uh, that like you're, when you're designed yourself, you know, is the thing that makes you money. You learn very quickly, like, okay, well, maybe this doesn't matter as much as I thought it did because that's not what the client needs or the client wants. And that's a whole separate thing of like how to work with clients, but it, it definitely makes you kind of reconsider that aspect. So taking freelance work, I think is a really good way um, to learn that under, understanding as well. For sure. Yeah. And I think on the note of, um, we talked about business, um, which mm. is related to design. And I think on the note of like kind of branching out of design, I'm curious, like outside of product design, what do you like to learn or consume that maybe inspi like inspires you as a product designer? Mm. Uh, I mean, I think it's changed a bit over time. Um, I think an interesting thing, there's a bit of a duality in what inspires me. Mm. I get really inspired by cities. Uh, so I used to live in New York. I used to live in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And there's something so beautiful about the chaos of Brooklyn or the chaos of New York that just works somehow. Like it, it is pure chaos. It is very much busy. Everyone is hustling and, you know, going as fast as they can, walking fast or get out of my way. Uh, but at the same time, everyone actually is very kind and very kind hearted. And the energy of the city has an overarchingly positive note, I think. And there's something kind of beautiful about that, that in the midst of this chaos, people find each other, people still find love, uh, people find 
ways of, of supporting each other. Um, and also all the weird kind of ways that like subways work and uh, buses work, like public infrastructure, all of those things are really fascinating to me in the sense that they all work, but none of them are perfect, right? Like everything is super far from perfect. And so that kind of inspires me in this way of, of understanding how the world works and that sometimes, you know, I apply this like perfect understanding of design that I have in my head and get frustrated sometimes, you know, when it's not as perfect. And so I find inspiration in the way that cities are designed, that that chaos kind of thrives, right? And right, that chaos right. is, is kind of like the standard rather than the deviation. And so in that same way, the duality of that is I actually get really inspired by nature as well. Um, and that there's a certain chaos in nature that uh, kind of is also beautiful, right? That like nobody tells a tree where to grow or tells, you know, animals how to behave in certain ways. They're following kind of a certain amount of instinct. So I know that uh, I live in California. And I know that's a very hippie response to what you just asked me. <laughs> and I want to acknowledge that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think both of those things are really interesting in that um, I, I think it's just important as a human being to be inspired by the world around you and understanding the context of things. And I think that's helped me be a better designer in the sense that it's helped me understand how people think, how people operate, what the practicalities of things are, not just like the way we think the world should work, but actually how does it work? And right. how do we, instead of fighting that, like just live with it and find beauty in that. Right. That brings up the concept of, I came across this concept called first principles recently. Mm. And I think that really reminded me of that because I think the core foundation of that is to understand like the very truth of things. And like, so basically it's a step towards understanding just how this world works, um, like strip of bias and also just pure observation. And yeah, so I think that, yeah, that was just the thought that that came up. Absolutely. We talk about first principles a lot. I think there's a lot of ways you can establish it, right? Where it's just like, mm -hmm. it could be the first principles of how you live your life or how a company is formed, the mission and the vision, or even a project, right? Of like, what is the reason that you're doing this and why is that important? I think that's always really nice to think about. And I use the the framework, the five whys very often mm -hmm. for that, mm -hmm. where you ask why five times and eventually you get to kind of like some root of, of a problem. Uh, and I always find that to be really fascinating. Yeah. I think shifting gears, I would love to talk about junior designers. Um, yeah. A lot of the listeners of this show are either still college students or they're new grad designers. So um, I know that over your career journey thus far, you have worked with, you know, several junior or entry level or even like higher level designers. You don't have to mention name if you don't want to, but looking back, was there one junior designer or intern you remember that made you think like, wow, this, this person is like really good at what they're doing considering their level. Um, and it's interesting because I also asked Kat this question. So um, I would be really interested to hear about um, the person that you bring up. Absolutely. Yeah. Actually, there was one designer um, at Etsy that mm. I thought was really, really exceptional. Um, and I think the reason that they were good at what they did is that they had a really good, you know, craft bar, like they were able to design things really well. Um, but I think they were able to also kind of break down problems really well. 
in the sense that I think a lot of designers, again, kind of think about craft as like the ultimate goal, right? That uh, it's like, I, I just want to design the coolest, you know, hippest things and I want to be featured on all the blogs and articles or whatever. But, you know, the things that they show on Dribble or the post on Twitter, not all of them are like thinking about these like super deep problems. And this designer was able to dive into like a really difficult problem um, on order management Mm -hmm. for how Etsy was able to help sellers fulfill orders Mm -hmm. and was able to go really deep and understand the complexities of like how even like the data was formed together in the database to create something that worked with the way that the engineers were going to build it. And so they really had this ability to just kind of let go and understand again, maybe some of these first principles and and some of these uh, foundations and ask questions and really get to the root of problems. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a really valuable thing that any designer possesses because ultimately at the end of the day, that's what our job is. Our job is to solve problems, right? And the fact that we can do that with visuals is just like the icing on the cake in a way, right? I mean, I was talking to someone the other day and they were like, oh yeah, like I love working with designers. It's great because y'all are like wizards. Y'all can just take this like idea that's on a piece of paper and turn it into something that actually works and like looks cool. And so I think that part is good, but it's also, I think the thing I look for in junior designers is people who ask questions and want to learn and are curious and, and kind of dig into those things a little bit more. I think curiosity um, they say curiosity killed the cat, but I think curiosity also hired the designer. That's what I, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I think, well, yeah, I think curiosity is definitely a huge one. I think really from what I'm hearing is like, as a junior designer, you might be given tasks to do, but I think maybe what separates one designer from the other is when given the tasks, you ask questions, whether it's actually valuable or like try to like ask for follow-up questions to try to specify the problem. And as we mentioned, first principles to get to the root cause, like, is this actually the real problem that I'm solving? Is that is that a correct way of, of saying it? I think that that's part of it. I think, you know, if you're, if you're asking too many questions in the sense <laughs> of like, well, why are we doing this? Is this worth doing? Right, right. You know, you might get a response of like, well, that's none of your business. Just do what I ask <laughs> you to do. You know, uh, that that can happen, right? But I think it's more like, okay, cool. This person asked me to do this thing. What do I need in order to be able to do it? What problems are there around this? Um, what existing research ex- ha- has been done? Um, what things do I need to discover? Who do I need to talk to? Um, people that are just kind of proactive about seeking that information out and looking for more opportunities to give themselves the ability to design something, right? Because at the end of the day, whenever you learn more, there's obviously a certain threshold that you hit in, in, in learning information where it becomes not as valuable and distracting. But it's really important to learn as much as you can in order to be able to solve a problem, right? Like the more inputs that you have, the better you're able to say, I have high confidence like that this is a good solution. And then that that's really where that confidence can come from, that data-informed confidence. Whereas I think sometimes junior designers might feel imposter syndrome in certain areas. 
And they might like respond to that with kind of a false confidence um, and be like, well, no, I, I know what I'm doing. I went to school. I, yeah. you know, like I, I went <laughs> to an classes. Ivy League or something. Yeah. yeah like, yeah, yeah. like yeah, okay, sure. But like, <laughs> it's more in, instilling that confidence through your ability to seek out that information and, and collect that information and kind of build that case for the designs that you want to achieve. Right, right. So like, yeah, you mentioned like data informed. Um, yeah, I think like being able to, I think synthesis is also mm. uh, an interesting part as well. It's like, how do you take in so many information and distill it to actionable things? Yeah, I think a good question that just popped in around that is, do you have any, I guess, best practices or things that you have done in the past that let's say like if you have a ton of like qualitative and also quantitative data, how do you process that? I mean, I don't think anyone has a direct answer to that question <laughs> because I, I mean, this is the other thing. This is why I like to use the, the term data informed versus data driven in the sense that data doesn't tell you anything, right? Like data just exists and it's up to you to interpret that data and this is also where you know bias can creep in. Um, other kinds of, of twists and turns can can happen. And so, the more data that you have, this from kind of different sources and diverse sources, and then also like the people that you're working with, also having them be diverse, they can give you different takes on that data. I think that helps create a little bit of balance. And that's really all you can kind of do to a certain degree, because if you say, um, you know, hey, this customer has this, this problem um, and all we're looking at is the, the quantitative piece and the quantitative piece is saying like, well, customers aren't doing X, Y and Z. We can come up with a lot of different ideas on how to fix that, right? Where we're like, OK, if we're not clicking this button, we can make the button bigger. We can put the button over here. You can change a lot of things. When you get into the qualitative data of understanding like why someone is doing something, being able to balance that to say like, well, it's a quantitative problem. People aren't doing it. The qualitative reason is actually not because it needs to be bigger or because this it's because they don't have like confidence yet uh, to click the add to cart button because they don't know the shipping times or they don't know this piece of information. And so it's really not about like a formulaic approach of saying like you have to have 50% qual and 50% quant. It's more like trying to look at what the data is telling you and pull out things that would also make sense in terms of like how a human being thinks, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. and we forget, I think a lot of times too, that like our customers aren't robots. We're, we're all humans. <laughs> right. Like right. Uh, people have certain desires and, and uh, feelings and thoughts. Uh, and all those are cultural and contextual as well. You know? Right, right. Yeah, I guess like always the hardest part is just try to understand how humans think and what what are some of the meanings behind the actions that they're taking. I think that's that's where qualitative research comes in. Absolutely. And I think honestly, the more you can be curious about that, mm. the better designer I think you'll be in the sense that if you're constantly asking yourself like, okay, well, why would someone not do this? And like put right. yourself in their shoes and understand different aspects, right? Like, I mean, I tell people this a lot too, like when I was working at Slack of like, you know, people aren't dumb uh, that are using our product, yeah. but they can be dumb in moments in the sense that like you have a thousand things going on in your life, right? Like this one thing is not the one thing that they're focused on, uh, no matter what you're building. 
um, it's like, all right, cool. I have this thing my boss is asking me to do and my kids are screaming maybe and <laughs> like other things are all happening. And so you have to take those contexts into account and how someone might feel. Nobody's going to look at the thing you're designing pretty much any time and be like, I am a hundred percent focused and always going to give you everything. Right. So the more you can kind of think in that way, the better you can understand how to cater your design to that. Yeah. I think putting our shoes into the, the yeah, I don't, I don't want to say user is, it sounds very <laughs> robotic, I guess, <laughs> but I like I, to I say customer that, sometimes because yeah, that implies yeah. they're paying you for something. Right. So mm, there you that's go. True. That's true. <laughs> Yeah, I guess not, not a lot of people say designing for humans. I guess they, they say designing for users. And when they start paying, it, it becomes customers. I, I wonder why that is. But um, yeah. Yeah, there's there was kind of, you know, there's like user-centered design, right? And then there's also like human-centered design and human interaction design, right? A phrase that I've been using a lot recently is actually, I like to say people-centered design. Mm. Because even if you if you take the term user, that literally, like a robot in theory could be a user at this point. Mm, yeah. Literally, actually, right? Like, I think there's parts of, of like AI and ChatGPT that could actually use a website. And then when you say human, like human is the anatomical bits of like who we are as like a, like a species, but it ignores kind of the entire cultural applications of things and how people talk to each other and think mm. and, you know, the, the psychology of, of a human being. Uh, and I think that's where people comes into play in the sense that like people is, is much more like thinking about all of those different contexts together, not just, um, you know, the person using your site or the human experience of clicking a keyboard. And it's like all of those things together. Right. And I think the interesting thing about terminate people is you're not designing for a single person. You're like, there's always like a group of people that you're designing for, I guess. Exactly. I, I don't know if that, that was the intention, but I just kind of thought of that on the spot. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. And like, that's, that's the beauty of the internet, right? Is like, is it's about connecting um, in the sense that very rarely are you using anything by yourself on a computer. Like you, mm, you do for yeah. a second, but it's like for the goal of sharing, you know, like, I write a doc so that I can share it with someone else or right. um, I make a design so that I can share it with someone else. You know, like it's always it pretty much always about some form of connection. I think on the note of the Internet, the next theme that I wanted to touch upon is actually right on the nature of software and also the Internet. So I think for context um before kat introduced me to you i actually already have came across your website i would recommend anybody listening to check out kyle's website it's it's beautiful um it, I, i've never seen anything like that <laughs> before um and i think to start off it'll be it'll be great to just understand like what sparked like why did you decide to create a new website for yourself what was the intention behind that yeah i think you know the ability that I've had to be able to code and design mm -hmm. has always given me the ability to kind of do whatever I want <laughs> in a way, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't have to ask someone to do something. If I'm building it for myself, I can just do it. And right. I obviously don't know everything. I had to Google a lot. I read a lot of tutorials. Mm -hmm. But I was in this moment where I kind of, I knew that I wanted to write a little bit more. And I wanted a space that I could 
have for a blog. Um, but I wanted to just kind of stretch my imagination a little bit and see if I could make something that felt really me, you know, um, not something that I was trying to make for some, someone else, but something that just felt like me. Um, and I just wanted to have that experience, I guess, which I think a lot of designers resonate with to a certain degree. Um, a lot of people say that design is an art and I would say that commercial design in a lot of ways, like has artistic elements to it. Right. But it's like, yeah, it's not necessarily art. Um, but I think design can be art in the sense that it, art to me is essentially like the expression of the artist, right? It's their ability to tell a story or to express something that they're feeling in a specific way that hopefully allows someone else to experience that feeling as well. And so the feeling that I was feeling at the time mm -hmm. and still feel, I guess, to a certain degree is like this interesting tension between the past and the present and the future when it comes to the internet in the sense that uh, I grew up using uh, old Apple II computers um, that had this like really weird monitor that was kind of monochrome. Mm -hmm. um, and there's an aspect of that that feels nostalgic to me. But, you know, talking to newer designers, uh, younger mm -hmm. designers, like that's like it, it's it's nostalgic in a different way in the sense that we in my generation kind of made that nostalgic. And so it's like nostalgic in this like, I, I don't know, more more uh, imaginative way. And I think that I see that a lot in kind of like the, you know, retro styles and like vaporwave and a lot of the aesthetics that I've seen Gen Z pick up. Um, that I really love and like harken back to this era that I kind of grew up in, but in like a totally different way and like their own way. And so I wanted to kind of like understand if I could make something feel kind of like that. Um, and I think that's also like the, the thing I just wanted to inspire, hopefully people to think about is like, yeah, you can do something different. Like the internet can be anything. We can make it anything. And I think a lot of websites that I look at and a lot of apps that I look at are just all trying to be each other, you know? Like, I really love websites like Stripe and Linear, and the people who make it are really talented and great. But you don't have to be that. <laughs> like, right, you don't yeah. have to design that way. You could mm -hmm. do whatever you want. Like, there's nothing holding you back from being able to put a font that looks really weird and funky if that's what you're representing for yourself or for the business that you're creating for. So that's kind of what I was feeling and why I wanted to make it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... On top of the point that you mentioned about like the internet being an expressive space, but now I feel like there's definitely a trend of like people copying designs, oh, um, yeah. and, like copying like visually aesthetic designs. Um, what what do you think are some of the biggest changes of the internet thus far? Because I feel like, yeah, I, I've talked to actually the um Jordan who was from Netflix and also Tufts mm -hmm. alum. He came on the podcast. He talked about his time designing in Flash. And for mm. him, that was a very nostalgic. And also, I feel like from what he was saying, it was a very fun time for him. And so I guess like, yeah, like what are some of the biggest changes? And also like, how is the current internet different from back then? I guess when like Flash was up oh, and yeah. also maybe even before that. Well, I think with Flash, what was interesting is that inside of the Flash container, you could do whatever you wanted. And no matter what browser you were on that supported Flash, it would render exactly the same. And so the cool part about that is like, you never had to think about 
any constraints really other than what constraints were inside of you know the 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 creation process of flash when responsive design came along um and apple made it to where uh you couldn't view flash on mobile it kind of changed the way that people started thinking about websites and we saw this big shift from flash to html right and at the time i was a big fan of it i loved html too you know, and I was like, this, this will be great. And I learned CSS and, but the reality is that HTML just has a lot more limitations. And also like, you have to know the actual syntax in order to use it. Whereas flash was like kind of drag and drop in a lot of ways. Uh, you still had to write action script and a few things there, but yeah, I think that changed a lot of things in the sense that all of these new artificial constraints kind of came on board. Uh, and so there were a lot of uh, things that were difficult to do uh, back back then that you had to like hack or figure out. Like if you wanted rounded corners on a button, you had to create an image and use that as a background image on the button. Um, oh, you know, like wow. there were a lot of limitations in HTML and CSS. And so that I think kind of like created this this trend of of more um, where you kind of see this like flat. Uh, mm -hmm kind of boxes essentially everywhere because everything's a div in HTML yeah. uh, that's just been styled. And so that's the easiest way to do that. And so you kind of see this natural thing happening. But what's interesting is uh, I think two things. One is there are way more frameworks now than have ever existed. Yeah. Uh, things like GSAP, things like 3JS mm. um, that are so much easier to use than they used to be to do really complex and cool things. Um, and the fact that, I mean, if you go even deeper, like Figma uses like WebAssembly uh, and like C++ on the oh. internet, like Ooh. that's wild, you know, like, yeah. and so they're building like completely different applications. And so I think technology for web uh, browsers essentially has really caught up to a lot of the things you in theory could do in Flash 20 years ago. Um, and so I think it gives a lot more ability to uh, stretch things and do things differently. But it's still, there's still that basic limitation there to certain degrees. Yeah. Um, so I think there's that. And then there's also this interesting um, aspect of AI that's happening, right? With generative, uh, uh, generative art and generative visuals in general. And so I think we're in this stage where actually like what those models are pulling from are things that already exist on the internet. And so I think we're going to see this and I guess we already see this to a certain degree with illustration, right? There's the like, kind of like Memphis, uh, I forget what it's called, something Memf corporate Memphis uh, illustration style of just like the people oh, that are kind yeah. of like blobby that's everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And I think we'll see kind of a similar thing happen with like generative AI where like everything kind of looks similar or has a similar vibe. And the things that are like created by humans will feel crafted and different and, and more interesting. And so I think we're in this really interesting stage where like a lot of these things can happen, but haven't quite happened yet. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm really interested to see what the next kind of wave of the internet looks like. Uh, maybe it's more decentralized. Like I'm on blue sky now recently. I just started using that. Twitter is a dumpster fire. I don't know <laughs> what's going on there. Yeah. Um, so maybe there's smaller communities. You have apps like, uh, like Bento, I think is, is yeah, one of these I've where you can that. kind of like, customize a page really easily. So there, there's just a lot more tools uh, and a lot more frameworks at people's disposal. And I feel like we're just now on the cusp of this really interesting stage of the internet. 
and we're about to go through a totally different uh, era that the past 20 years has been. I use Midjourney. I don't know if you use Midjourney before, but um, I I started using it. It's like a, uh, it's on Discord. It's like an image generator tool oh, yeah. that I started using. It is it is so good. Like it's really, like it's impressive. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like it's it's actually really impressive. And like obviously like ChatGPT and also I had I didn't buy GPT for it yet, but I've also mm. heard really good things about it. So yeah, I think that honestly that brings up the question of like if AI is sourcing everything from the internet and it's been created by humans before like it kind of brings their point of like will the things that they generate be similar in like styles and also just like patterns and like are we and as humans if we're consuming those if we will also follow that pattern and is it going to be hard to i guess come up with more unique and also different like art styles with designs um but yeah i, I mean i think i think we'll have to to some degree but i also think we need to change our definition of what good design is. Uh, I think a lot of what we have viewed good design is, is like based on a lot of Eurocentric standards. Uh, and you apply that to, you know, this minimalism trend of the past, I guess, really like 50 years, to be honest, uh, in design. And you think about all the different natures of, of uh, how AI is going to change things. I think we'll have to think a little bit differently about what good design is and, and what it means to actually design something and, and the purpose of design. Um, and I'm really interested to see folks from the younger generation, you know, push that and come up with different stuff that, yeah. uh, you know, hopefully it actually pisses some people off, to be honest. <laughs> like, I think really good art and really good design is like, you know, it, it, it might make a few people angry in some ways that they might disagree with that. And I think that's good. Like if you're designing something that is loved by everyone, then technically it's not actually loved by everyone. It's just like liked by everyone. It's just like, everyone's fine with it. Yeah. Uh, it's so I think it's sometimes it's better to just, it's better to find the core group of people that you're designing for. Um, and I think Slack does this to a certain degree, right? Where like, there are some people who don't like Slack. They prefer other things, but the people who love Slack, or at least used to, uh, really love Slack. And we built that for them, right? As, mu as much as we could. You, you want universal design to a certain degree when it's about usability and accessibility and allowing as many people to come into this process as possible. But at the same time, when you inject art into that space and when you inject design into that space, and maybe mm -hmm. if communities are smaller, um, then you can be a little bit more niche and that's okay. And you can express yourself in different ways. Right. Yeah. I think on the note of like pushing the boundaries of design and also redefining potentially what design, like good design is. I'm curious, like, have you recently came across, I guess like new, uh, how do I say it? Like new frameworks for design or like just really cool products that is trying to do that, I guess, other than like ChatGPT and also Midjourney or other image generation tools. Yeah, I mean, I think I mentioned this before. I think Bento kind of does this mm -hmm. a little bit mm -hmm. in the sense that um, I think it gives you, and there's other, I think there was like uh, another product called like Page or something. Oh, I, th I, I think I saw that. I it's like a it drag called. and drop website. Yeah, it's like yeah. drag yeah. and drop, but it, it's much more loose in the sense that it doesn't, uh, I think you see other products that try to be very like constrained and say like, all right, you have to, you know, 
drag it on this like grid canvas mm -hmm. and it has to like lock into place so that it's like yeah. perfectly designed and then some apps are just like hey this is going to be a little wild you know like and that's okay um and again it all depends on your audience and your context right like if you're designing an app for a hospital or uh like a corporate app that has a different audience and a different reason that you would do that um but in terms of the internet at broad and just like uh, allowing things to be on the internet. I think apps like that are kind of interesting. I'm also a huge fan of Partiful. I love Partiful. Mm, uh, I, I don't know if you've used yeah. that yet. Yeah, but, but I've used that. I mean, like, and some of it is like, you know, is it accessible in the sense of like, <laughs> there's a, they have a background that just like animates. Yeah, I saw. And then like things and, floating around and then like. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, it, you know, maybe that's kind of illegible, but also I don't know, maybe that's okay. Like right. as long as you can kind of in theory read it or there's other yeah. ways, maybe you can turn it off or like change the, I think there's apps like that that let people express themselves in different ways. I think are really interesting. Yeah, like when I first landed on a part of full site, I think it was for some party or some uh, hangout or something. And then I was like, whoa, I'd like this is kind of crazy. But also <laughs> like, <laughs> like kind of fun. It's like things yeah. floating around. There's like a water flowing background and then like, like there's so many things, but I guess like in terms of like whether that's excessive or not, I something that I sometimes wonder is just that like with designs like that, will people just eventually get used to it? And like maybe there isn't unless it's like really like not able like if people are not able to read it, obviously that's a problem, but maybe that's where like the balance between being expressive but also like maybe people would just get used to it. Totally. I think that's totally possible. You know, I mean, there's a certain degree in which like, you know, if someone has uh, like a sight disability or mm -hmm. um, has neurodiversity and like needs to parse things in different ways, like yeah. I think it's always good to be thoughtful about how we're making sure that what we design is accessible for as many people as possible in terms of uh, disabilities. But I think it's also like culturally in terms of how we what we accept i think i see that happening a lot more and that i think younger generations are less caring about things being like perfectly aligned and like crisp and uh like i i think that even becomes like a like it becomes kind of cringy sometimes when stuff is like too perfectly aligned and too well done right and so it's like I see even brands do this now where like, I mean, I was on TikTok the other day mm. and uh, it was uh, the Paris Olympics in 2024 posted a video on TikTok. You should go to their account. Look at this video. Yeah. And it's like people diving and like uh, synchronized swimmers, but it's all sped up and it's someone making sounds of it going like, <laughs> like, and like it, oh, it is that. so unserious. Yeah. And I would have never, this is the official account for, for Paris 2024. Wow. And it is so unserious and I love it. Like, it's like, there's yeah. something about that, that I think culturally, if that would have happened even five years ago, 10 years ago, that would have been like a news story, you know, like of like, <laughs> can you believe like, what, what they is, just did? Yeah. Yeah. And it's definitely a lot more, I don't know, maybe that gets back to the chaos idea of mm. what I was talking about earlier oh, I enjoy chaos to a certain degree, um, but I think uh, I think I see the world maybe being more okay with that type of stuff. I know we're almost out of time, so we'd love to jump into the final question. 
Um, yeah. This is a question to your younger self. So if you're now facing yourself but 20 years old, what career slash life advice will you tell the young Kyle? I would say uh, short version, long version. Here we go. Short version is don't be in a hurry. It will come. And I think that the long version of that is that when I was younger, uh, I grew up really poor uh, and I grew up in a very small town and I somehow (laughs) got really lucky and found out that I was good at computers and I was good at design and uh, met a few people who saw that and, and wanted to work with me and then more people wanted to work with me and I, I just got very lucky and I kept saying yes to things, um, which I think that part was great. And I'm glad that I said yes to those things. There were a lot of things on the side where like I would take a job, you know, and work like normal hours, but then I would take freelance jobs on top of that. Uh, and there would be some times where I'd be working just, you know, 80, 90 hours a week. Wow. Um, I'd be working through the weekends, like, mm-hmm. and I loved it. I, it was really fun, right? Like, I think yeah. Yeah. I also have ADHD and I can get hyper fixated on things. And so I think, you know, it's easy for me to just like lose four hours while designing um, and just be like, where, where was I? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was really easy for me to just like make that everything in my life. Um, and I know a lot of people who have done that. I think that, um, obviously it was enjoyable. It was fun, but I was, I, I was grinding, right? Like that's, that's what they yeah. say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted, I wanted to be successful. I wanted to, I wanted all the things. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to be recognized for my work. And I think what was interesting is that sometimes I would always be looking, you know, two years ahead, five years ahead, mm. and I wouldn't really be focused on the present. Right. And, and like who I was, what I was experiencing, the people around me, um, the, there's a certain gift of being able to not be excellent at what you're doing in the mm. sense that you're still working at it. You're still doing it. And I feel like that if I could convince myself at 20 to like, just be more in love with that process than the, the, the goal, than the end of the, yeah. than the results, then I think, um, I think it, I, I would have been a little bit more content uh, at that time, I think. <laughs> yeah. No, it sounds like back, like the young 20 years old, Kyle was a hustler and just like grinding every day yeah. to, to, to reach a, a certain goal in the career, like career or design wise. At the, you know, at the same time, like I'm kind of glad that mm-hmm. uh, young 20s Kyle did that um, <laughs> so that I could get to where I'm at today, right? Like I, it, the results did come um, to a certain degree. And I mm-hmm. think that they usually do to people who work hard. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's, it's also just like not getting lost in that. That can't be the only thing. Right. Like, and you have to, to a certain degree, trust that it will come Mm. uh, and just work towards it. And just like, you can't be like, oh man, I wish it was five years from now when I have this, this title and I'm at this job and uh, I have these things, right? Like, cause you'll get there and you'll still be the same person. (laughs) Like, yes, you'll have those things. Like maybe I don't have to worry about, um, you know, paying my rent like I used to when I was 21 years old uh, in the same way. But I think that 
I'm the same person in the sense that I still find joy in different things and uh, I'm around, I find joy in the people I'm around and, mm. and the, the situations I'm in. So yeah, I think there's, that's also like a broader philosophical uh, question. You know, there's a, a teacher named Ram Das who talked a lot about this, you know, like be here now is the thing that he, he talked a lot about, like be in the moment, be in the present because the present's the only thing that's real, you know? And it's hard to think about the future and, yeah, totally. nobody can predict the future. Um, Absolutely. Kayo, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, I really enjoy our conversation, and I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the show. Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, and I uh, really appreciate it. Hey there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really appreciate your time. And again, before we say goodbye, my name is Guo, and you've just listened to the Not Just Pixel Show. And I'll see you in the next episode.